0: Hey, before we get started, I uh, I want to share with you something that is very exciting, uh, something that we as a, as a staff have been very excited about and just want to share with you as well. On November the 10th, and I know that's a good ways off, but uh, there's a reason for us going ahead and sharing this. On November the 10th, that's a Saturday night, uh, Crosspoint Church is going to host uh, Passion, uh, Passion Worship Night. And what that is is... Uh, Louis Giglio and the Passion uh, Band, they are doing a tour across the country, uh, and we are going to be hosting one of the nights uh, in which they will come here, and uh, just, it'll be an incredible night of just worship and and uh, hearing from Louis Giglio. If you don't know Louis Giglio, he's, uh, he's someone who's been around for a long time, but he's uh, one of the most incredibly gifted communicators of the gospel that I've ever heard, and so uh, I'm very excited about them being here with us. Travis Green is another artist that's going to be with us as well. And so this morning, we are selling tickets for that event. Uh, following the service, you can go right out here. If you hadn't already found them uh, coming in this morning, and you go ahead and purchase your tickets, or starting tomorrow, uh, you can go online and begin purchasing them online. You can go to our website or our Facebook account and find the link there and just take you right to where you can order these tickets. But it's going to be an incredible Time for us as a church. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of people are going to want to be a part of that. So we just want to make tickets available to you guys first. Uh, But this event probably will sell out pretty quickly. And so that's the reason for us going ahead and and just mentioning that uh, this morning. I'm very excited about it. Very excited also about continuing in worship this morning through the reading and preaching of the word. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us, and then Jason Van Nuss, our teaching pastor, is going to come and share uh, what uh, God has laid on his heart, and uh, it's it's a great message. Uh, This morning, we were talking out uh, before uh, the services, and and he was just sharing with me what he's going to share with you, and he's very excited about what God has laid on his heart, and I'm sure that you will benefit from that as well. So uh, I want to pray for us this morning, and then Jason, if you will, come and and share uh, from God's word this morning. Pray with me if you will. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit of God, Lord, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have as a faith family to come and to just worship you in spirit and truth. Uh, God, to, to lift up our voices in song, to pray and to praise. And God, just give you all the glory that you are so deserving to receive. And so, Father, today we just thank you for this time as we do each and every week as we just prepare to dive into your word. And, Father, I just I lift up Pastor Jason to you, God, as he comes to share what, what you have given him to share with us. And, Father, I just pray this morning that you would hide him behind the cross as he, he presents the gospel, Lord. And, Lord, uh, as we hear the gospel, God, may we be a people who are very responsive and, and, and God just... Uh, Celebrate what it is that you wanna teach us this morning. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, that we may live with you for an eternity. God, as we uh, come to this time now, I just pray that you would be with us. God, that we may encounter you. And Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Thank you, David. Um, Let's get right to it. Go ahead and turn into, in your Bibles into uh, to Ruth, chapter 1. So we're going to spend the majority of our time uh, today, uh, probably all of it, actually. Um, <clears throat> and the interesting thing about the book of Ruth, it's, it's a favorite, um, but it's a favorite for a lot of people to read. I think it's, just, it's a good story, and it is a phenomenal story. Um, but there's so much more to Ruth than, than just a good, interesting story. And, and when you think about the books of the Bible, a lot of them have this overarching theme. And you can, you can read through it and you know you know what it's trying to communicate. Ruth is, is, is different. Ruth is a little bit different because there's so many things you can pull out of Ruth. There really isn't this overarching theme or this, this meta-narrative, if you will. It's, it may be absent of a, of a one complete teaching of a moral, but it definitely has the presence and purpose theologically in the lives of believers. And so I am very excited to to walk through this with you today. I'm gonna have four points, four main points uh, to share with you. But before we get into looking actually at Ruth, what I wanna do is I wanna take the second to give you a little bit of a backstory, and and just just briefly, but in order to understand Ruth in its context, you have to look back to the very last verse in Judges. And and what you see in the very last verse in uh, in Judges, Judges 21-25, it says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so, this is speaking to a a pretty dark time in in Israel's history. Um, The pattern of behavior here was that the Israelites would rebel against God. God would send an enemy. They would, the people of Israel would then cry out for mercy. God would then send deliverance in the form of a judge who would deliver them from that enemy. And then... Sooner or later, they'd be back into rebellion. God would send an enemy. The people would cry out for deliverance. God would give mercy, so on and so forth, for 400 years. And this is a, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty dark time. It's speaking to a time between Joshua and Samuel, when there is no king, and, and it's ruled by judges who come. Each judge comes to defeat an enemy. Um. But the cool thing about this is at a very dark time in Israel's history, you see God doing something very intentional, very purposeful. And he's working something that is just absolutely incomprehensible to the finite mind that in the darkest time of Israel, he is working to secure and preserve the lineage of Jesus Christ, who will be our Savior. And that's where we pick up in Ruth. Yes, Ruth talks about preserving the lineage of Jesus Christ, and it all starts with one pagan woman, Ruth, a Moabite, non-Israelite, putting someone's needs before hers. So let's look, starting in Ruth 1, verses one through five. I'm not gonna read these, I just wanna give you just a very quick background before we get into the actual content of today's message, which is gonna be verses six through 18. But here's what's happening. You've got Naomi is married to a guy named Elimelech. And they, they live in Judah or, or Israel. And they, are, um, they decided in these dark times of, of people doing whatever their eyes see fit, they're also on top of that is a famine. So now they're, they're leaving and they're trying to escape a famine. And so, again, you've got Naomi and Elimelech. And then you have her two sons, um, Malhan and Chilion. And so they make this, this journey down through Israel, around the Dead Sea, and they, they, they get to Moab. And then Scripture doesn't say how quickly, but almost immediately, when they get to Moab, Naomi's husband dies, Elimelech dies. So now she's in Moab, a foreign place. Her husband's passed away, and she has her two sons who are going to help provide and protect and then her sons almost immediately marry two pagan Moabite women. One of which is, the, is the, the crux of today's message, Ruth. The other is Orpha. And so it is, it's, my, it's my opinion that, that the scriptures here are showing us that she's not happy with her sons marrying pagan women, Moabite women. They're, is, they're, they're Israelites. And the reason I, I feel that way is because verses 1 through 5 are widely known to communicate Naomi's misery. Put yourself in Naomi's situation. She is at home in her hometown. She's got a husband. She's got two healthy boys. Things are are going well for her. Then they find themselves in this dark time of Israel where, where, where people are corrupt and doing what they want. Then, on top of that, have a famine. She begins to leave. Leaves family, leaves home, leaves friends, takes her immediate family, and they begin to travel to a foreign land with foreign people, foreign gods, In search of a way to sustain life because there's no food where they are. Then her sons marry, when they get there, her husband dies, her sons marry pagan women. And I'm convinced that the reason it's mentioned here in verses 1 through 5 is because she was not happy with the fact that her sons married pagan women. It added to her misery. And it's a bleak outlook for Naomi. And then it gets worse. It gets worse before it gets better. Because then, after 10 years, she's there by herself. Her husband's gone. Her son's there. Her son's marry These pagan women. 10 years after the fact, both of her sons die. So now she's in a foreign land with foreign people, with foreign gods. And she has no husband, no sons. And she's left with just the only two relationships she has are with these two pagan women who, who were widowed by her sons. What a, what a tough 10 years. What a tough 10, 11 years in this lady's life. And so this gives us the backstory of where we're going today in verses 6 through 18. And I'm excited to, to get to, to, to show you the content of this passage because although there may not be this one moral that Ruth is trying to communicate, the book of Ruth, there is this overarching narrative of Christendom. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. This is what it looks like to be a selfless servant. So if you will read with me Ruth 1, verses 6 through 18. After her husband and her sons have passed away, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. His people Israel is what you're talking about. So they're going back to Israel. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they could become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go away, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpheus kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to, to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. A lot of amazing things that I, I, I want to get into, and, and I'm going to do my best to do it in the time we have today. But there's some things that are, that are a little more um, essential that I want to communicate to you. But I want to break this down, and, and this passage breaks down into four parts When I read this, one is verses one through five. And I've already mentioned this depicts Naomi's misery. Foreign land, foreign people, foreign gods, her husband dies. Sons marry, pagan women, sons die. Now she's left foreign land, foreign people, foreign gods, foreign customs. And she's got no one but these two pagan women that her sons have married. Just paints a picture of misery. Her people back in Israel are still undergoing famine. David or, or, or Saul, the king, has not yet come, so they're still not a king. They're still in these dark times being judged with judges. Very, very dark time in, Na- in Naomi's life. Then you get to verses 6 and 7, and this is where I, I kind of envision this trip to the border. I mentioned geographically that, um, that Israel is up here, and you've got the Dead Sea, and then you've got Moab, and, and they would have had to go down into Moab, and now they're, they're going back up because she said, look, I'm, we're going back, and and, and she makes this journey and her daughter-in-law are following her. And I can envision them getting to the border of Moab and Israel right there on the Dead Sea. And her turning back to her daughters in law and saying, go return each of you to your mother's house. Go back to Moab. Because if you don't go back to Moab and you follow me, all that awaits you is a life of widowhood and childlessness. Because I can't give you children because I don't have a husband. And if I did have a husband and I conceived tonight, would you wait for my children to be grown that you could then marry them? Go back. Go back. I'm cursed. For some reason, the Lord's hand is upon me. And let's not mistake Naomi for being a godless person. She's doing what I hope I could do in a midst of struggle where she's acknowledging that there is a God and that he is sovereign and that for some reason, unknown to her, he has reached out his hand upon her. Now, we know if we read through the story of Ruth, how this ends, it's an amazing story. But you see that journey to the border and she's trying to convince her daughters-in-law, go back, go back, and they're not having it. Well, at least one of them's not having it. Or, Orpha was just like, peace, I'll see you later. Ruth, uh, Ruth man, what a, what a woman. Then you see verses 8 through 15. Like I just mentioned, there's this battle of logic, if you will. Naomi's trying to convince them for all these reasons that make sense. Here's the thing, guys, when Satan is trying to discourage you, he doesn't give you reasons that don't make sense. Naomi, her mind is clouded with grief And she's trying to convince them not to follow. And they come back with, again, things and reasons that make sense. And there's this battle of logic and this this, this logistical maneuvering to see who's going to do what. And then finally, at the very end, Orpha's gone. Naomi clings to her. And she says, don't even try to talk me out of it. Don't tell me not to follow you. And then it says that Naomi just stopped talking. It says she had no more to say doesn't say that she agreed. doesn't say that she embraced Ruth. It just says, okay, I'm not going to win this argument. And then they continue their journey. So I have four things I want to tell you about, four main points today of this sermon. And I wanted so badly to be able to get up here and challenge you and charge you. Here's how I want you to serve God, but I don't know. I don't know where God's calling you. I don't know how he's moving in your heart and how he wants you to serve him. But I can tell you that what we can learn from Ruth are these four things tenets, these four premises that are going to show us what God expects of us in terms of putting others first and how it can have a marvelous impact. The ripple effect that starts so small can become so large in God's glory. So one, what we can see is that godly service towards others, putting others first, doesn't have a face. It's not like you can look around the room and say, "Oh, I can serve that person, that person, that person." Look who the Godly service came from, a pagan woman who was not a professing believer. Ruth, she was a Moabite, served and worshiped other gods. And there's no evidence in, in Scripture that her time with her husband, she was converted. There's no evidence of that. It may have happened, but there's no evidence. I'm convinced that, but when they were married, that they were not believers, or or otherwise, it wouldn't have been in one through five, and Naomi wouldn't have been upset about it. Think about this for a second. It doesn't have a face. She is not a believer. She's a pagan. She's a Moabite. And God, through having her put someone else in front of her, putting someone else's needs in front of her own, grafts her in to the lineage of Jesus Christ. Because if you've read through the story, we're not going to get there today, but spoiler alert, if you haven't read, I'm about to tell you how the story ends. Ruth goes back with Naomi and meets a man named Boaz. And they become married and they have a child. His name is Obed. And Obed is the grandfather of David. Yes, that, that David, the king of Israel, the greatest king Israel would ever know, Earth, the king Israel would ever know. And Jesus Christ came through David's lineage. So let's take a step back and understand what's happening here. You have a pagan woman who is putting the needs of her mother-in-law first. She really has no reason or right to do this. She's perfectly within her rights to say, look, your husband's passed away. Your son, my husband's passed away. We're going to go about our own lives but she chooses to put Naomi's needs in front of hers. And in doing so, in that one selfless act of service, God preserves the lineage of Jesus Christ. Because they would have Obed, Nobad would would be the grandfather of David. Ruth, the pagan woman, is the great-grandmother of David, King David. And that would not have happened if she had not put Naomi's needs in front of hers. So the question here is, God in the service doesn't have a face? You never know what God's intentions are for you and the way you treat others. It may seem small. It may seem insignificant. But we can't sit back and pick and choose. We serve without bias because God has called us to and we love. And look at that little tiny ripple effect grows into essentially preserving the salvation for all Jewish converts and Gentile converts who've been grafted in to Christ. Because a keystone of his lineage is David, who came from Obed, who came from Ruth, who was grafted in because she chose to stay and serve Naomi and put her needs in front of her own. So what's that mean for you? It's okay, Jason. That's cool. That's a cool point. What's that mean for me? It means you don't know what God's going to do in your life. You have no clue what he can do with just the littlest, smallest seemingly most insignificant act of service and servitude when you put someone else's needs in front of your own. God has called us to serve others, and he says, let me serve you. You worry about other people, and you let me serve you. Isn't that what Christ said in the Gospels? I did not come to be served, but to serve. You serve others, and you wor- don't worry about you. You worry about them, and let me worry about you. And that's exactly what we see here with Ruth. The second we see here is that godly service toward others defies logic. There's this whole discourse where Naomi's trying to convince them logically, making good, solid points that they need to go back and be with their families because nothing but ruin and misery awaits them. I have no sons. I have no husband. I can't give you more sons. Go back to your family. Go back to to your people. Go back to your gods. There's nothing good for you here with me. A woman stricken with grief and misery, overcome with heartache. And then they respond with logic. No, we're not going to do that. And, and here's this discourse. And someone who loves to think and debate, and I'm fascinated with this discourse because you see back and forth and back and forth. And then finally, Naomi just says, okay, Ruth. Ruth says, do not talk me out of this. Don't even try. I'm following you. And then it says, she just stopped talking. And they left. It defies logic. So what's this mean for you? It means that you don't understand what God's plans for you are and don't try to figure them out. Scripture says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. If you sit back and try to figure out what God is doing in your life, you're going to miss something. Be obedient. Submit. Let the Lord move in your heart. Let the Lord move in your life. And don't waste time trying to plot out his plan. His plan is already plotted out. And I picture sometimes that you're in this dark hallway and you want so badly to flip the switch and have 35 light bulbs down the hallway illuminate so you can see where you're going. And sometimes God gives you one light bulb at a time. And you waste time trying to figure out what's next, what's next. Just be obedient and serve and love people and let God do what his plan is in your life. If we're trying to make it, break it down into these logistical steps, we've become robots. We're we're no longer able to to live and serve as as people free in faith. It defies logic. That's... Verses 11 and 13, I just want to read those. Or verses 8, she goes, go return to each of your mother's house. Then 11 says, but Naomi said, so it's it's almost kind of like she says at first in verse 8, she's like, okay, just go back and return to your family's house. Go back. And she's being kind of nice about it. She's trying to kind of put them first, make it about them. And then they say no. And then she gets a little more aggressive. And she's like, go back, turn back. Nothing good for you is going to come from following me. And then they say, or one of them says, Ruth says no. Orpha says, okay, and then Ruth says it again, and finally she says, fine, just, just come. The exchange for her and her dollar loss is fascinating to me, but it shows us that you cannot grasp an infinite God's plan with a finite mind. Think about that. He's infinite. He transcends our understanding, yet we spend all of our time trying to think and outplot him. Where are you taking me? Versus just saying, "I'll, I'll go. Just show me, I'll go. The third point, godly service towards others isn't easy. Now, we all have this person in our life. They make it hard to serve them. The person who when you see coming, your flesh says, oh my gosh, let me just dip into a hallway real quick. Ruth's, Service and putting Naomi first was not an easy one. Look at what Naomi's going through. She's, She's upset and she's bitter. And even as you read on in Ruth, and I would encourage you, please go home the next week. Read through the rest of Ruth. It is such an amazing story. I wish I had time to cover it all. But later on, actually in this chapter, right after we stop, they return back to Judah. And the people say, oh, my gosh, hey, Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mora, which means bitter. She's bitter, she's angry, which again, let's not mistake, she's not being disobedient. I wish that I could be so real and honest with God that when I'm angry, I can say, God, I'm mad at you. And not just hide behind these righteous masks that we want to put on. Naomi is not the villain here. She's reacting to pain and hurt, and she's acknowledging a God who is sovereign, saying, for some reason, and I don't know why, God's hand has reached out upon me, and she's trying to save her daughters-in-law from that pain, but they say, no, we're putting you first. We're putting you first. Naomi basically says, I'm cursed, and if you follow me, you're going to share in that curse. Now, let's take a step back from here, and let's look because something really important is happening here. Naomi is forgetting a very important Jewish tradition, that when a husband dies, women in that time did not have a a main role in the community or culture other than, than bearing children, specifically bearing sons. And there are stories in all of history of women who don't bear sons to kings, and they're killed because they bear just daughters. And so... We get into this and we'll see in just a little bit, but Naomi forgets the principle that when a husband dies, a brother will redeem that that wife because that then gives her place in culture again. And then if both sons die or there's not a son to redeem her, that the next of kin will redeem the bride and so on down the road. So the name and the family name is preserved. And Naomi is overcome with the idea and the notion that God's hand is stretched out upon her, that God is against her, and she forgets about a man named Boaz, who is a relative of her husband. And so the premise here is that sometimes we can be so convinced that God's hand is stretched out against us that we're so mired in struggle and turmoil And we're so convinced his hand is stretched out upon us that we over-exaggerate our hopelessness. And that's exactly what Naomi did here. She overstated her hopelessness because she forgot about Boaz. And later in the story, again, Ruth goes back, follows Naomi, meets Boaz. They marry, they have a son. And then there's Christ's lineage preserved. (laughs) Don't be so overcome in, in, in the fact that you may think you're in a place that's not a good place that you exaggerate your hopelessness. Let others serve you. And in your attempts to be obedient and serve others, let God show you who He wants you to serve and put first. And it's not going to be easy. Naomi was probably not an easy person, she's bitter, she's angry. Shutting people off. She tried to shut them off from serving her. And she said, no, go back. We all have that person, unless you're that person. (laughs) Unless you're the person people don't want to serve. But we all have that person in our life that makes serving others hard. And that's good. I'm glad it's hard because that's when you have to rely on Christ. If you're serving someone in your own strength, you're not giving them anything of eternal value anyway. You must serve them in God's strength. And that's exactly what we see here. And then finally the fourth point is this. Godly service towards others is sacrificial. So you see in this passage Ruth did not count the cost of what it was going to be, of what it would mean to lay everything aside and follow Naomi. She didn't count the cost, but I invite you right now, let's do it. Let's count the cost for her. Let's trace the steps. In that time, you married somewhere between the ages of 12 and 18. So they marry 12 to 18. They've been married for 10 years. So when their husbands die, Ruth is anywhere from 22 to 28 years old. And she's committing to a life of widowhood and childlessness by putting Naomi's needs first. Talk about an anti-prosperity gospel. A woman in her mid to late 20s, putting someone's needs ahead of her own, saying, I would rather serve you and I would rather make sure that you are okay than pursuing a life of my own, of children and husbands and whatever, back in Moab. That is anti-prosperity gospel. And that, that means is that it is true gospel. You cannot be a lover of God while maintaining a love for yourself. It must be selfless. So let's count the cost. Early to mid-20s, mid to late-20s, she's in her 20s somewhere. She's laying that aside. She's putting it aside, saying, I would rather serve you. She's leaving her mother her family, her mother, father, cousins, everything, her town, she's leaving her town, her people, her land. She is putting herself in the same position that Naomi was in and was bitter about, having to leave Israel, leave Judah, and go to Moab, a foreign land with foreign people, foreign gods. Now Ruth is putting herself in the same position that Naomi was in. As they return back to Naomi's homeland, she is saying, I will go to a foreign land with foreign people and foreign gods and foreign customs foreign cultures. I will do that, and I will do it because I want to put you first. She's entering the unknown. She's entering the unknown. She has no idea what awaits her. And I'm glad because if she knew how the story ended, there wouldn't be such a step of faith to do it because the story ends in a marvelous way. But she doesn't know that. She thinks she's abandoning everything, and she's going to embrace the lifestyle of widowhood childlessness in her early, mid, or late 20s. But I want to look at this commitment here. Guys, we think a lot about certain things. Sometimes, like someone gives you a gift and the shirt they give you is too big, and you're like, oh my gosh, did, did, I, look that, did I look that big? Am I gained gain weight? They give you a shirt that's too small, and you're like, I have I gained weight since last time they gave me a shirt? They gave you a hat, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm more concerned something me being bald. And we think about everything everything we think and we think and we think and we think, but we don't think about the things that matter. We overthink everything, but we just want to take this and just read it. If you study what's happening, look at what Ruth says in in her famous words at the end. She says, where you die, I will die. This is taking the covenant of marriage to a whole nother radical level. What she is saying here in a marriage, marriage vows you're saying, till death do us part, which means that when one of us dies, the other can go their own way. She's saying, where you die, I die. I will be buried where you die, which means when you die, I will not go back to Moab. I will not go back to my family. I will not go back to my country. I'm embracing your lifestyle. I'm embracing your God. I'm embracing your people. I will die where you die. That is radical service and putting others first. Incomprehensible, actually, to see what she's doing. Covenant marriage to a whole nother level. And then you see this amazing time where for the first time, normally we actually focus on Ruth. And she says, and your God will be my God. God is doing a miracle in her life as she begins to put Naomi first. I mentioned that I do not believe that they were converted when they married her children. I believe this is where you see the confession of faith. This is where you see it. Which tells us that the act of putting others first draws our heart closer to God. And then she says, your God will be my God. A public proclamation of faith in her God. Abandoning the idols of the Moab people, embracing God, the God, Yahweh. What a story. What does this mean for you? Is it finances? Is it giving up a weekend to go on a a youth retreat? How can you put someone else first Is it getting up early to come work the children's service? Is it staying late to help clean up certain things? God, I don't know what your struggles. I don't know where God's called you to serve, but I can tell you this is a great example of where to look if you want to become a selfless servant, serving others is going to mean you serve without bias. It does not have a face. You can't pick and choose who you serve. You serve whoever God shows you and brings into your life. It means that you can't try to outthink God, maneuver God into something that's going to be easier to do. You do what God's called you to do when he's called you to do it. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have people who God brings to your life who it's challenging to serve. They make it tough. They try to cut you off and block you out. But we've got to persevere like Ruth and overcome those things and do it in God's strength and not in ours. And it's going to require an abundance of sacrifice. Laying down a lot of freedoms that are perfectly okay to have, but voluntarily laying them down for the sake of serving others. As I read through this story, I think about the example that Ruth is following. Jesus Christ. He is the first. He is the preeminent. Sacrificial servant. And as we transition into a time of taking the Lord's Supper, I want to challenge you. Reflect on his broken body and his spilt blood. He set the standard for being a sacrificial servant, putting others' needs first. Reflect on that. Let God move in your heart as you think, how can I follow your standard that Ruth was following, that other heroes of the faith were following? How can I set that example putting others' needs first. Guys, it's not easy. It is absolutely atypical. We are people who are our, our flesh wants us to put ourselves first. That is not the gospel. The gospel calls you to serve others first and to trust God for your needs.